Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our book study. Before we get into Wolfmuller, I wanted to give you an update on what we found in regard to our next text, the Enchiridion, Ministry, Word, and Sacraments by Martin Chemnitz. What I have in my left hand is the out-of-print hard copy, and what I have in my right hand here is the uh, print-on-demand soft cover copy. What we found is that the pagination is the same. So what what we did after last Thursday, after we everyone who told us they wanted to order one, we ordered them. We've distributed those. We uh, we've received and distributed those. So we, uh, if you're online, by the way, I have yours. If you requested one, what we would do is just turn you loose to find these because you can get them at CPH. Uh, Concordia Publishing House. You can get them at christianbook.com. You may be able to find them on Amazon. And then if you're digging around looking for one of these that's long out of print, you might find a bargain at uh, eBay or Abe Books or are there any other used places uh, that are popular these days? Don't know. Yeah. So anyway, we're turning you loose. Even if you ordered it from CPH, they say it's going to take two to three weeks. They probably have a, a, a stack there. It probably won't take that long. If it did take two to three weeks, you're probably going to be okay because we're going to spend some time with Wolf Mueller going through his argument on eschatology, and then he's got a concluding chapter as well. So just wanted to give you an update on that. Uh, they're not as hard to find as we had thought there for a time. As we get into Wolfmuller's American Christianity, we're looking at the end times or eschatology. We left off on page 211 where he's going to introduce us to premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. We did a very quick take on those at the end of last class. And all of this, of course, as you can tell by the language of millennial, has to do with a thousand years. So we'll look at this, like where does this come from in the scriptures, and what can we know about it based on the other scriptures. Before we do that, let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So, turning to page 211 in Wolfmuller's text, 1,000 years of what is his subheading? Let's just begin at the beginning. Wolfmuller writes, there are about five different eschatological schools of thought. And remember, eschatological, eschatology, this just means the study of the end things or the end times. These grow, Wolfmuller writes, chiefly out of different understandings of a singular passage in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 tells of a 1,000-year time in which the devil will be bound and the saints will reign with Christ. This 1,000 years is called the millennium, from the Latin mille, thousand, and annus, year. 
how you understand the millennium relative to today and the second coming determines which school of thought you fall into. Now, bullet pointed, he has these three different takes on eschatology. The first, premillennialism, teaches that Jesus will return to establish his kingdom on earth. You can see pre, meaning he comes before this thousand-year period where the saints reign with him. Post-millennialism teaches that Jesus will return after a 1,000-year golden age, which is yet to come. We talked last week how this became very popular during the industrial and modern revolutions, and everything was going great, and it seemed like technology was going to lead the human race into holding hands and singing kumbaya. Instead, we bombed each other twice. Uh, and so post-millennialism isn't very popular these days for that reason. Very few people think we're going to have some kind of utopia. Although uh, this is, at least in part, the project of something like the one world government, where we're all in harmony and we're all one humanity under one rulership. Doesn't that sound lovely and just perfectly utopian? Yeah, yikes. Like the last time humanity was fully united, anything close to that was the Tower of Babel. <laughs> and that didn't go very well. So postmillennialism, not really in vogue, but uh, could it come back into vogue? Yeah, you see some you see some pieces laying on the floor that if they were put together, this could suddenly be viewed as, hey, first things first, one world government, you know, give up, don't you you won't own anything, says the one world government will own everything and you'll be happy about it, and then we'll tell you who Jesus is and when he's come back. All right, third, last, certainly not least, ah, millennialism. And then Wolfmuller says, or realized millennialism. I don't know, maybe that's uh, popular in other circles. I haven't myself run across that, at least not frequently. Amillennialism teaches that the 1,000 years is a description of the time between Jesus' ascension and return. And I think we could modify Jesus' ascension to... I mean, that just maybe puts a little bit too fine of a point on it. It's true enough because Jesus' ascension in Revelation 12 is he ascends into heaven and he is enthroned in heaven. And you say, well, wasn't he enthroned before? So what's the big deal? He was enthroned before. He came down from his throne, became man, grew up, preached, taught, was crucified, died, was buried, was risen, ascended, and now he's just back on the throne again. What's the big deal? He's back on the throne as a human being, as true man. That's the big deal. So as man, he reigns. And this is the astonishing thing. The gospel is too good. Lutherans even get offended by it. A man sits on the throne of God. That's news that is simply too amazing, too mind-blowing, too good for most of us to conceive, but it's a fact. 
So I can see why Wolf Mueller and others, many others, want to put this at Jesus' ascension. But I don't think we want to read that so narrowly as to exclude, for example, his crucifixion, where he is crowned with thorns and where he is lifted up on the cross, exalted on high, and above his head reads a sign that says, King of the Jews. So we just don't want to put too fine of a point on that. We could just say the Christ event, Christ's coming, Christ's crucifixion, Christ's ascension, and all mean essentially the same thing. But anyway, that is the beginning of the thousand-year reign. And we would point to verses like the end of Matthew 28, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. And again, you think, well, this is the Son of God. Didn't he have all authority before? And we're missing the point. Yes, but not as man. Now, God, true God, and man, true man, in one person says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's an astounding thing because it means a man has all authority not only over earth, but also over heaven. Hmm. That's why the first chapter of Hebrews argues the way it does, and that's why our Christmas hymnody calls the incarnate Christ the king of angels. Because a man has authority over the angelic sphere and the heavenly sphere, just as over the earthly and human sphere. Okay, so beginning... Um, at the Christ event, at Jesus' ascension, and then lasting until his return. What does that require? That simply requires that we read the thousand years as a figurative number, because we all know it's been closer to 2,000 years by this point. So that's what what is required to hold amillennialism, is that a thousand years in Revelation chapter 20 is a figurative number. It kind of sounds figurative, doesn't it, right off the bat? A thousand years. If I said, the kids have been pestering me a thousand times today, nobody takes that literally. Everyone says, okay, we know exactly what you mean. We'll look into some other argumentation there. But now you have the three, premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. Wolfmuller continues, most of American Christianity is pre-millennial. And in fact, a specific type of millennialism called dispensational premillennialism. Ooh, anything that convoluted and ugly can't be true, can it? I'm teasing. More on dispensationalism in the next section. And that is how Wolf Mueller is going to do it for us. First things first, we're going to talk about millennialism. Then we're going to talk about dispensationalism. And Wolf Mueller identifies three main claims and problems with dispensationalism, which, by the way, has its origin in the 19th century. And then we're going to, going to go on to discuss the rapture. There'll be nothing left but the clothing you were wearing. Nothing left but a pair of underpants on the couch in your bachelor pad. That's it. You're zapped out. And then Wolfmuller is going to take us into the reading of Revelation. Okay, so just plugging right along with Wolfmuller at the bottom of 
very bottom of 211. It is a good bet that if you hear a preacher on the radio or television talking about the end times, this teacher is a pre-millennialist, and he is putting forward this teaching as if it was the only way of reading the Bible. Premillennialists teach that the world is entering a particularly difficult time, that various political events are fulfillment of Bible prophecy, and that Jesus will return to establish an earthly kingdom where he will rule and reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. Surprise, my kingdom is of this world. In the millennium, people will live to an extreme old age. There will be peace among the nations, and almost everyone will be holy, at least until the end of this thousand years, when the devil will be loosed to lead a rebellion against the Lord and his people. When Jesus puts down this last rebellion, he will cast the devil and all his followers into the lake of fire. There will be the resurrection and the last judgment. And after these things, the eternal state will begin. This, at least, is the chronology of the premillennialists. It is not what the scriptures teach. All right, next he's going to lead us into the text of Revelation 20. Before we begin, and trying to limit ourselves to what Wolf Mueller's covered heretofore, any thoughts, any questions, anything resonate with you in particular? And if not, that's fine. We'll just jump into uh, Revelation 20. I'll just throw in that I was a part of a group once where they were premillennialists. And one of the women said she wanted to reign in Hawaii, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Set up your throne in Hawaii. No one really dreams of setting up their throne in the middle of Nebraska. <laughs> in the heat, humidity, endless flatness. Not that I have anything against Nebraska as a Colorado Buffalo fan. Not that I would ever hold a, <laughs> hold a grudge even way past its relevancy. <laughs> Teasing. Yeah, this is... <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, everybody wants to reign until you get assigned where you're going to reign. <laughs> All right, was there another hand or question? No, we're okay? All right, a little, little further with Wolf Mueller into Revelation 20. Now, here he's just going to quote it for us. Then I saw an angel, so this is John speaking in Revelation. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So that's the first thing we want to note from this text is a thousand years, because that's where it all comes from. And then we also want to pay attention to the binding. We know that this is the dragon, the ancient serpent, which I love because it takes us back to Genesis, doesn't it? Kind of gives you a different picture of the serpent that was there in the garden. May well have been more dragon-like. 
That aside, we've got the binding of Satan for a thousand years. Those are the key elements heretofore. Picking up midstream with John's sentence, bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. There's the second. Reference to the thousand years, but just right here in this text. John continues. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. All right. So the next thing we have is this: they came to life, which is a resurrection, and reigned.、Um, Now, what kind of resurrection is the question? And reigned with Christ. So there we have the idea of reigning with Christ, and we have the third reference for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life, and again, that's what's in view: is what kind of coming to life, what kind of resurrection are we talking about? The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. A fourth reference here in this section. This John says is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Quick question: Do the Scriptures say that you're a, a priest of God and of Christ? Are you a royal priesthood? Yeah, there is that. So interesting that you would already be called that, even though we're long before any literal millennium. Okay, let's see what Wolf Mueller does with this text. At the top of two thirteen, he writes, "We will ask two questions that will help open up this text from Revelation. One, what does the rest of the Bible say about one thousand years? Two. What does the rest of the Bible say about the binding of the devil? First, what about one thousand years? Should we understand this as a literal one thousand years? Our preference is always to read the Bible as literally as possible, but we also want to understand the text in its context. John in Revelation, as is in,、uh, as is in the other. Apocalyptic texts of the Bible uses numbers to capture an idea.
If we interpret the numbers as a symbol, we are in fact understanding the number as John intended it to be understood. All right. So, just when we look at the apocalyptic genre of literature, we remind ourselves that this is literature written in a different mode, in a different way. You can think of a legal contract being a certain kind of genre. You could think of the manual that was poorly translated from China, telling you how your food scale works. That would be a different genre of document. You could think of poetry. That would be a different genre or kind of document. You could think of a narrative, or a, you could think of fiction or nonfiction. We've got all these different genres. And in the apocalyptic genre, symbolism is used everywhere. For example, in the apocalyptic genre, when John looks and sees the Father and the Spirit, but not the Son, and suddenly he sees the Son, he sees not a man, but a lamb. Now, how do we read that literally? Do you see the problem? That to put the question really down to brass tacks, does Jesus have four legs or two? You have to understand the genre in order to understand what's being said. Furthermore, we're told that this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. So if you go up into heaven and you see anything other than a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns, like maybe you see a man or maybe you see a lamb with two eyes and two horns, then you've got a real problem, don't you? You may not be in heaven because you literally have to see Christ as a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. That's a problem. This is trying to read poetry as if it were a legal document or a legal document as if it were a work of fiction. We're confusing genres. The, the truth is deeper than what we would call a literal reading as if we were doing a different genre. So that we look and we say, well, what are the seven horns? Horns always show power in the apocalyptic genre. He has sevenfold power. We know that seven is the number of God. God has two favorite numbers, three and seven. And so the sevenfold power of God. What is sight in the apocalyptic genre? It's always perception, to perceive and thus to know. He has sevenfold perception, knowing, seeing. All right? And why is he a lamb? Because he literally has fur coming out of his skin or literally has wool? No, because he is the sacrificial offering who made atonement for our sins. Thus, the lamb is specified as looking as one who was slain and yet standing. So Christ is our sacrifice. He reigns with the power of God, with the wisdom of God, sevenfold power, sevenfold wisdom. You see how all of that's communicated in this beautiful, from our vantage point, kind of poetic sort of way. That's the apocalyptic genre. And there are other apocalyptic texts in the scriptures and outside of the scriptures. You can study this genre and see what's meant. In this genre, numbers almost never mean what they actually are. They always have this deeper meaning. In the same way we saw seven horns and seven eyes, that has a deeper meaning. 
It's not literally seven that matters, but but the fact that seven is identified with God. When we see the one hundred and forty-four thousand in Revelation, if we read that in some sort of confusing of two different genre literal type of ways, we end up with well, one hundred forty-four thousand Jewish virgin males get to go to heaven and nobody else. So almost. I mean, I would just say, like all or almost all of the numbers in Revelation and other apocalyptic texts are there to tell us something other than a literal numeric value. Does that make sense?、Okay. So when we hit one thousand years, we're going to see the same thing. So I just wanted to do a little excursus here on the apocalyptic genre、um, that we see in the Bible and outside of the Bible. So once more to Wolfmuller, middle of that paragraph where we left off, John in Revelation, as in other apocalyptic texts of the Bible, uses numbers to capture an idea. If we interpret the numbers as a symbol, we are in fact understanding the number as John intended it to be understood, and that's usually what what is meant by literal is. Because literal is a the more you try to pinch at that word, it's like, well, what does that mean? What are you getting at? The harder you try to grasp at it, the more it eludes you. It's like trying to grab Jello or nail Jello to the wall, right?、Uh, the yeah, the harder you pound, the more it flies everywhere. You can't nail it down. So literal is just, in most cases, in common exegetical parlance, is trying to figure out what precisely the author means. That's what we want. To say about it—that's what we want. That's how we want to understand it. And so, literal in the concept of apocalyptic doesn't mean, oh yeah, Jesus literally has four legs now. In what sense is he a true man if he's got four legs? No, that's not the point. That's not the way to do literal. Literal means in showing him a lamb. A lamb represents a sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrificed, crucified and risen, slain and risen. For us, okay, that's understanding the apocalyptic genre literally. That is grasping at the meaning the author intends and holding firm to it. All right, hopefully that's clear enough. Hopefully we don't have to get more complicated than that. Wolfmuller continues, and I think this is a a fun argument he does. Second.、Uh, Full paragraph on page two thirteen. It turns out that the Bible often uses the number one thousand in a symbolic sense. For example, now quoting Psalm chapter、uh, Psalm fifty and then verse ten. For every beast of the forest is mine. This is the Lord speaking. The cattle on a thousand hills. Well, which thousand hills precisely? We have to know in order for this to be. And if there's more than a thousand hills, then those aren't his cattle. You, you see how we're confusing two different genres. Then here we have a poetic statement, and to understand that correctly, we want to say he means on every hill, everything is his, and that is the literal or proper understanding of that poetic statement. Okay, so we do have a biblical example where. 
And again, if if you if one wants to insist, let me just again kind of go on the offensive here. If one wants to assist、uh, insist that the thousand years in Revelation twenty must be understood literally, and and they think that they're doing this because that's how to consistently read the Bible, then you have to say also that the cattle on a thousand hills—that's it. No more and no less belong to the Lord. That's the kind of Ludicrousy that sort of reading takes you into. All right, pulling back to the next paragraph that Wolfmuller presents. What about? Yeah, he makes the same argument. What about the cattle on the one thousand and first hill? It too certainly belongs to the Lord. In fact, all the cattle on the, all the hills belongs to the Lord. That is the point. A thousand is used to capture the completeness of the Lord's rule and His utter lack of need. Um, now, quoting two verses later in Psalm 50, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness is mine. Of course, this is a fun part of the psalm because the idea of sacrificing—we kind of miss some of the fun of sacrificing. Not that—not that it's really fun, <laughs> but the the point of sacrificing the animal and putting it on the altar was to cook it and offer it. It's a barbecue. See, this is something we as Americans can understand. It's a barbecue, and you're saying, "Hey, God, here's some barbecue lamb for you," or "Here's some barbecue." And it was really understood more in paganism that you you are feeding the gods. That's what you're doing. So you're cooking for them a barbecue. Here, have some meat. This is the most expensive food you can eat. And so here, God's saying, "Do you think I need your sacrifices so I can eat?" Do you think I need your cattle because I don't have any cattle? I've got all the cattle on the earth. If I was hungry, do you think I would even tell you? <laughs> yeah. So you've got this rhetorical thing of God saying, "Look, I'm not like a pagan god, nor do I need your sacrifices or have some kind of necessity. On the contrary, you are giving me these sacrifices that through them I might declare your sins forgiven." Please. Yeah. Didn't the offerings also feed the priests? Isn't、mm-hmm. that where they got their food?、Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Barbecue for the priests. Well, there were grain offerings as well. Yeah, I can't remember what exactly they got. When I was always, as a, I was always a little appalled by the fact that they got the fatty portions. That sounded disgusting to me. You know, if you go to a restaurant and. They give you some chunk of meat, and it's like ninety percent fat. You're like, thanks for nothing. <laughs> That's gross. But yeah, the older I get, the more I'm like, okay, maybe that means like well marbled, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So the priests,、uh, the priests did eat from those,、um, but contrary to paganism, God doesn't. The idols were seen to eat. They don't. The priests eat. That in fact is how they're provided for by God, but. The real, the real, mind-blowing aspect of the sacrifices is that God calls the priesthood. So remember how this works: God tabernacles among His people in the tabernacle before the temple. He is moving into the neighborhood. They've all got tents. God says, "I want to put my tent in your neighborhood." That's what's going on there. And then He says, "Okay, I need household servants." That's the Old Testament priesthood, and I need them to offer sacrifices so that you can be cleansed of your sins and come into my tent. 
So you see how neighborly and earthly all of this is. That God desires to move into the neighborhood, have His tent, but the problem is He's holy; they're not. They can't come in. In order for them to come in, because God's hospitable and wants everyone to come over to His house once a week, He institutes the priesthood and the sacrifices to make this possible, so that the people can be cleansed and come into His tent and share and dwell in His holiness and blessings. That's the Old Testament. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's earthy. And so, yeah, the priests then, as God's servants, eat of those sacrifices themselves, and those sacrifices work to cleanse the people. Um, there are two categories of sacrifice in the Old Testament. There's the sacrificial, which are done for the cleansing of sins from God to man, and then there are the, uh, we sometimes call them Eucharistic or thanksgiving, which come from man to God. They affect no forgiveness of sins. They are just an offering of thanks and praise. This may seem alien to us until we think that our divine service is exactly this way. One aspect of all of our divine service is what God is giving and doing for us, and then the flip side is what we are doing and giving to God in response, which is our thanks and praise. It's just those two things, and that's articulated also in the sacrifice of the Old Testament. There are sacrifices where, through which God is forgiving our sins. His action to us, and there are sacrifices through which the people are giving him thanks and praise for this forgiveness and for his goodness. So that fundamental dynamic of worship exists all through the Bible and through both testaments. Make sense? All right. Shall we go a little further? Next paragraph on two thirteen, the largest on the page. Quoting Psalm one hundred five, verses seven and eight, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever, the word that He commanded for a thousand generations. Okay, we have another usage, biblical usage of the language of a thousand. What is meant here? Does the Lord? Forget his promise on the one thousand and first generation? Certainly not. In fact, if we take this to mean a literal one thousand generations, we would be in trouble. According to the scriptures, we are probably less than two hundred generations from Adam. We are nowhere close to one thousand generations, which would mean, if we read this to mean a literal thousand generations, that this world would need another thirty-two thousand years before the Lord could, in fact, keep this promise. The thousand generations of Psalm one hundred five is to be understood as forever. The Lord will never forget His covenant. Okay, so you see yet another. Uh, non-literal in the strict sense, use of the language of a thousand in the scriptures. Ironic. I think there's an ir- irony here. I don't know that Wolfmuller points it out, but there's an irony here. Of course, the people who want to take Revelation twenty a thousand years literally. Are also the people who think that the end of the world is coming any second. If 
they really believed that that must be taken, a th- that thousand years in Revelation must be taken literally, they would also believe that in 10, Psalm 105 it would be taken literally, and then they would know that the end of the world's not going to come for another 32,000 years. You see how it's a self-defeating exegetical position. All right. Wolf Mueller's nicer than I am. He doesn't point that out. 2.13, there are three times that the Bible speaks of, quote-unquote, a thousand years. Psalm 90, verse 4, 2 Peter 3.8, and Revelation 21 through 10. Psalm 90 is the oldest psalm, the only psalm of Moses. It is a prayer about the mortality of man and the mercy of God. We pray Psalm 90 in the funeral liturgy, sometimes as the lid of the casket is closed before the service. Verse 4 reads, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. No man ever lived to 1,000 years. Methuselah, the oldest we know of, lived to the ripe old age of 969. But even this great age of a man is nothing to the Lord. 1,000 years is as a day, like a few hours. All of the great achievements of man are nothing at all, and we all waste away. This is certainly a symbolic use of, quote-unquote, a thousand years. The second use of a thousand years is 2 Peter 3.8, where Peter quotes Psalm 90. Now, from 2 Peter 3.8 through 10, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Wolfmuller comments, Notice how Peter uses the text from Psalm 90 to describe the Lord's patience. We expect the return of Jesus at any moment, but the Lord is patient. He desires that none should perish. He waits. Peter uses a thousand years to describe the time of the Lord's patient mercy before the second coming of Jesus. The scriptures consistently use a thousand, and specifically a thousand years, to indicate the fullness and completeness of something. When we come to the 1,000 years of Revelation, we have the same thing. The 1,000 years indicates the full and complete time of the Lord's ruling and reigning. In fact, it seems like John is using the phrase the same way Peter did in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10, as a description of the Lord's patience between the ascension and second coming. All right, so not only now in this section do we see a thousand years as being symbolically used once more, but we see that the thousand years as in which Peter, the context in which Peter uses it, is literally that age of the church, that time from Jesus' ascension to his second coming. So we do have a biblical example where the thousand years is used for that same period of time 
that the amillennialists will say is the thousand years of Revelation 20. Does that make sense? Okay. So we have a precedent. We have a biblical precedent of identifying a thousand years with that same not literal thousand year time period. Okay, very bottom of 214, and then we'll pause. Using scripture to interpret scripture, we understand the 1,000 years of Revelation not as a chronological demarcation, but as a theological indication of the complete patience of the Lord before his return. Okay, there is the first half of Wolf Mueller's argument, and I think that when you take in the biblical evidence, as he's shown us, you see that the amillennial position, that the thousand years is not a literal thousand years down to the very second, uh, this, is, uh, this is the biblical reading of Revelation 20. Let's pause there, see if you have any thoughts or comments, or if this surprises you or resonates with you. What about the pre-post nutty people that thought the world was going to end at um, 22 years ago when we had the centuries that changed? Yeah, they're, they're right. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Y2K, right? Oh, man, the nostalgia. Yeah, Y2K. The computers were all going to shut down or something, and maybe the nukes were going to go off, or we weren't going to get our time back. The economy was going to collapse. Yeah, people were storing up stuff. And then and then every so often you get like these little micro-movements of that here and there. I can't remember what the year is, but we had... Um, was it Harold Camping? I can't remember. Was, was he one of the famous guys that predicted... Fairly recently, like in the last... There was a there was a prediction. I knew it because in the neighborhood here of the church, there was a truck that was just completely plastered with signs like, this is the date the world's going to end. And I would always drive by it and see it, and he'd be cruising around, and I'd see him. And I put it on my calendar, you know, because I wanted to not miss it. And, of course, it came and went. And when this occurs, what happens to the false prophets who prophesied falsely. People still follow him? Yeah, sadly. Or they're on to the next guy who's got another date. I mean, when are we going to learn? So, yeah, all of this is all of this is really foolish kind of kind of stuff, but thank you for <laughs> bringing bringing that up. If we had a if we had a dollar for every time someone said this is the date and time that the world's going to end, we'd all be I don't know able to afford a full tank of gas. <laughs> all right, any other thoughts? A thousand years? We have a hand all the way there in the, in the back. Don't you think you're being unfair to the movie industry? <laughs> That's right. This takes away so much of the... The drama of Hollywood, right? And, and the drama of preaching. And the drama of current events. You know, so, so many people come to church these days, uh, here in America at least, not to hear about Jesus, not to confess their sins or be forgiven. Uh, 
not to be comforted, not to learn or grow in their wisdom or how they conduct themselves here in this life. But they, but they come to church because they have been faithfully watching the news all week long and they want the preacher to do some magic and tell them this is what the scriptures have to say about these current events and their significance. And it's like, ah, oh, great. Okay. I've got this week's update. Back to, uh, back to the news I go. And that's really a, a kind of system that feeds on itself. And preachers get into this and people get into this. And then pretty soon you have whole churches based on trying to read the current events according to a document written a thousand years ago for first, or yeah, two thousand years ago for first century people. That's the problem. Yeah, please. Um, aren't the people who are literal about the thousand years the same ones who say symbolically in other parts of Revelation, oh, those mean helicopters and tanks and yeah, 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 the, like the armored locusts and all yeah. of this are yeah, Apache helicopters and I mean we've all been around long enough. We've uh, we've seen many, many supposed end times, final, ultimate antichrists come and go. I the the I the I mean, I'm dating myself here, but the first I heard, it was certainly Saddam Hussein. He was definitely the Antichrist, capital T, capital A. And that came and went. Then I think it was Obama. <laughs> as much as maybe I didn't appreciate some of the things he did, he fell woefully short of being the Antichrist. And yeah, who knows? They're probably on off into other things. But you hear all this... Gog and Magog and Ru trying to identify this with Russia and China and what's happening in the Ukraine and oh, lo and behold, there doesn't appear to be any America in, in uh, Revelation. And so what does that mean? And, you know, there's even some kind of like cheering of the downfall of America because they think that that brings us one step closer to this uh, sort of end times fulfillment where America is no more. I... I remember growing up, I don't see him very much anymore. I don't watch the weird cable channels. When I was growing up, it was like, I don't know, I watched People's Court all the time. <laughs> like the price is right. But they always had these commercials, send the Jews back to Israel. I was like, what kind of neo-Nazi is putting these on? And then it was a Christian guy who would come on at the end and he'd be like, we need the Jews to go back so that Jesus can return. You know, man. Yeah, Jesus is just waiting out there. Like, Please send the Jews back. Yeah, so this is the kind of ridiculousness that we uh, that we unfortunately have as a result of all this. Any uh, any other comments? Any other questions? Yeah, I would say too that there's a there's a real deep irony that you pointed out uh, that the same groups who really assert that this thousand years is literal and we've got to literally identify these different nations or entities in the book of Revelation with current nation states, that kind of take. These are also people who deny that it's the body and blood of Christ, who don't like when Jesus says, this is my body. They go, no, 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 no that's got to be symbolic. Whereas something so crazy as the, as the apocalyptic genre of Revelation, they go, no, 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 these have to be literal. And you can see a kind of, shall we say, theological inconsistency there. Okay, that's the first question. 
how do we understand a thousand years? And I think if you look at the biblical data, and Wolf Mueller's done a great job of showing us that, you see that a thousand years is always or almost always used symbolically. At the top of 2.15, he gets into the second question. Our second question for Revelation 20 is this. What does the rest of the Bible say about the binding of the devil? Because remember, that's the key, is that for a thousand years, this angel descending with the... He binds Satan for a thousand years. So, what does the rest of the Bible say about the binding of the devil? The binding of the devil marks the beginning of the millennium. Here, Revelation 21 through 3, just for review. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Wolfmuller writes, if we can determine from other biblical texts when the devil is bound, we will be able to determine when the millennium begins. We should not be surprised that this event is spoken of throughout the New Testament. American Christianity teaches that the binding of the devil is a future event. It is something that will be accomplished when Jesus returns in glory. So remember, premillennialism, Jesus comes before the millennial, uh, before the millennium, I mean. So Jesus comes, binds Satan, and then the millennium begins, which means that Satan is not bound now and has not been bound ever. Wolfmuller continues, the scriptures, on the other hand, constantly put before us the cross of Jesus as the binding of the devil. Jesus attracted the demons. The demons make occasional appearances in the Old Testament and the book of Acts, but they are swarming in the Gospels. Jesus is to the demons like the, por <laughs> like the porch light is to moths. And Jesus fights and contends with the demons. He casts them out and sends them off. He, with authority, sets people free from the influence and trouble of the demons. The Pharisees noticed this and accused Jesus of deriving his authority from the demons. Jesus responded with an argument and a parable. Now quoting, um, well, there's parallels in Matthew 12 and Luke 11, but we're quoting here from Mark 3, 26 through 27. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. All right, who is the strong man? Can you remember enough of the context? Who's the strong man? The devil. What's his house? The world. Who is going to come in and plunder the strong man's house? The devil's world. Jesus. What exactly is he plundering or taking out? Us! <laughs> right. 
We who formerly belonged, you know, it's like, it really goes like this. The whole story is this. We belong to God. The devil stole us. Now Christ is coming back to steal us back. But as Jesus says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless what? He first binds the strong man. Now you, you can think about this. Uh, you know, if you were a thief, and you were going to go rob Arnold Schwarzenegger's house, you would have to figure out how to tie Arnold up so you could plunder his house. Otherwise, you would constantly have to be fighting him off as you're trying to carry out his big screen TV and his couch and whatever else. All right, So you've got to bind him, and then you can plunder his house. So Jesus is saying that Satan must be bound, and then I can plunder his house. Aha! So now we have this direct from the teaching of Jesus, an indication as to when the strong man is bound. Wolf Mueller writes, bottom of 215, the parable is this, the devil is the strong man, his house is the world, his goods are the unbelieving people throughout the world. The thief is Jesus who binds the devil in order to rescue sinners from the devil's kingdom and transfer them into his own kingdom. Jesus talks of his earthly ministry as a binding of the devil. And kind of a fun thing to think about. Jesus here compares himself to a thief who binds the strong man and plunders his house. On the cross, Jesus is crucified, as it is commonly said, next to two thieves. The greatest thief of all is right in the middle of them, and he's the holy thief who, through this very act of his being bound to the cross, is ironically binding Satan so that he may plunder his house. Beautiful, beautiful imagery. Now, this uh, reading and understanding of the parable, um, Jesus earthly ministry is a binding of the devil. Wolf Mueller says this is confirmed by John in his first epistle. Now quoting 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came, John teaches, to destroy the works of the devil. Notice if Jesus did not manage to destroy the devil, then he did not finish the work he came to do. Perhaps the clearest and most profound text in this regard is Hebrews 2. Jesus, Hebrews tells us, is greater than the angels. That's what I was referring to just at the beginning of the class. But still he humbled himself to be our brother. He has taken our humanity, our flesh and blood, in order to save and deliver us. Now Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself, Christ, likewise partook of the same things. Ah, he has flesh and blood. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Wait a minute. Through death, when did he die? On the cross. Through the cross, he is destroying the one who has the power of death. Through the cross, he is destroying the devil and the devil's power and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
That deliverance is the plundering of his house. You can hear the language in the background of Exodus. Through Moses, God plundered the house of Pharaoh by delivering the people out from his possession. You see? The same thing is happening now. Our satanic Pharaoh is having his house plundered as God delivers us out of his kingdom and into the kingdom of his son. So Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, pinpointing this at the cross of Jesus. Now, where was, to continue with the parallel, where was the power of Pharaoh in the Old Testament finally and definitively broken? so that he was no longer a threat whatsoever. The Red Sea. And where is the power of hell's pharaoh, our the one who enslaves humanity, where is it finally and definitively broken? The cross. Through death, Christ might destroy the one who has the power of death. Through death, Christ might destroy the devil. So the Red Sea is to Pharaoh what the cross is to Satan. Could Pharaoh afflict the children of Israel any longer? No, neither could Satan afflict those who are in Christ. So we're working toward this idea that the binding of the strong man, the destroying of the devil and his power, takes place on the cross. And hopefully you can see the the biblical context of that teaching all the clearer. All right, Wolfmuller goes on. This text is loaded with teaching and loaded with comfort. We are the children of flesh and blood. Jesus, in his incarnation, takes flesh and blood upon himself in order to die. Notice the result of his death. Through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. There is no confusion here. The death of Jesus is the destruction of the devil. American Christianity objects to this teaching. Look around. Oh gosh, that's not a good way of doing theology, is it? I mean, your sins are forgiven and death has been removed from you forever. That's the gospel. Look around. (laughs) I mean, what evidence is there that our sins are forgiven? What evidence is there that we have been set free from the power of death? There's none. Anytime you make a theological assertion and someone says, look around, that is, that's contrary to my experience, you can know that you have the high ground. Star Wars fans will know how important it is to have the high ground. All right, so American Christianity objects to this teaching. Look around. Things are going to pot. (laughs) This world is falling apart. A glance at the newspaper or 10 minutes of the evening news will convince us that the devil is alive and well. This is a theological argument that presumes we can determine spiritual truths with our eyes. That's the key. We're going to do our theology by the Bible or by our eyes. We call this theology look-aroundism. We look around to see how it is with the devil, how it is with Jesus, how it is with us. The look-aroundist concludes that the devil is loose, ruling, and reigning. The look-aroundist assumes that the Lord Jesus must not be on the throne and that the devil 
is not at all bound. And this look aroundism is just, I mean, it's rife unbelief. Look aroundism is what takes the sacraments away from you. Somebody who picks up the bread and looks around and goes, I don't see Jesus, must not be there. Uh, I, the, the cosmonaut gets blasted into space. No sign of God up here, must not exist. I mean, this is the kind of genius level, high IQ stuff we're dealing with. Well, we just, we just lost our time. I think we're very close to the end of this argument. I think we'll just pick up here next week with Hebrews 2. Make myself a note. That's where we left off. And um, we're going to look at Hebrews 2 and Psalm 8. And we're going to continue this theme that Satan has been bound. And look, yeah, this is great. Satan has been bound already and the plundering of his house has begun because according to Revelation 20, he is bound for what purpose? That he may no longer deceive the nations, the Gentiles. In the first century, how far had Christianity spread? Not that far, perhaps through the known world, but how far has it spread even today? There's not a nation on earth where the gospel hasn't been heard. And there is not a nation on earth where there aren't Christians in some way, shape, or form. Satan has been bound such that the nations, the ethne, the Gentiles, can believe in Christ. And we do, and we're being taken out of, we've thus been taken out of Satan's kingdom. All right. More to be had next week. The Lord be with you.